0: The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That says Richard Dawkins in his 2006 bestseller, The God Delusion. He goes on later to say that the God of the Bible is a psychotic delinquent and the monster of the Bible. And he lays down a challenge that says those of us schooled from infancy in his ways can become desensitized to their horror. Is that true? Have we simply become desensitized to the horror of our God? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1, 2, and 3, God told the Israelites that when they came into Canaan, that they were to devote everything to destruction, having mercy on no one. And as we read through the book of Joshua, we see that that happened in three cities, in Jericho, and Ai, and in Hazor. They killed everyone, man, woman, and child, with the exception of Rahab and her family. We know that when Achan held back some of those things that were to be devoted to destruction at the battle of Jericho... And so they lost the first battle of Ai, that Achan and his entire family was killed for. it. We know that the angel of the Lord, in 2 Kings chapter 19, killed 185,000 people in one night. Brothers and sisters, there's no doubt that the Old Testament is a bloody book. And so what do we do? with this God of the Old Testament. Some folks, having been raised on these stories, have never really given much thought to it. For some of us, it's that dirty little secret about the Bible that we hope we can hide from seekers until they have better faith, and so we just want to push it under the rug and not really deal with it. Some, having their eyes open to it by the likes of Richard Dawkins, begin to ask, What do we do with this God of the Old Testament? It's not a question to be dismissed. This is not something for us just to say that, well, I have faith, that doesn't really matter. This is a serious question that causes serious doubts. And I fear that if we are not careful as we answer this question, we'll receive the same rebuke that Job's three friends received In Job chapter 42 and verse 7, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. It seems that God is far more concerned with truth than He is with mere defensiveness. And so the approach that says, oh, just any old defense will do, is is not what God is concerned about. He's concerned about truth. And so that leaves us with the question, what do we do with the God of the Old Testament? What I'd like to do is share with you some things that we should not do. Some defenses that we should not make because God is concerned about truth and not just whatever argument we can come up with. And then take a look at six keys of defense of God in the Old Testament. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God in heaven, you are the great and awesome God. And we love you. We magnify your name. And yet sometimes we hear things or we see things that cause us trouble. And sometimes we have doubts. We pray that you would take those doubts away. Father, help us as we face the attacks of those who are in the world today, that we can stand up by faith in you. In years gone by, Our enemies attacked us with the sword. In years gone by, they attacked us with persecution. In years gone by, they would kill us, they would torture us, they would cast us in prison. Today, our enemies are much more enlightened. And instead, they mock us and ridicule us. They deny your existence. They mock and blaspheme you. And sometimes, because of that, we are made to feel stupid and ignorant. We pray, Father, that you will give us confidence that we can trust you and believe in you and that we can share our faith with others so that those who are questioning may be strengthened and they glorify you along with us. God, be with us today as we study your word. Help us simply to see your truth. Help us not to be blinded by our own presupposed ideas, but rather to see your truth so that we might give an answer for the hope that is within us, that we might glorify you and help others glorify you. Father, please don't let this be about me. Not unto me and not unto us be the glory, but unto you. Help us to have our hearts open to your word and simply see what you have to say to us. Through your Son we pray. Amen. Now what do we not do? What we shouldn't do? Some defenses I don't think we should make. The very first thing that we should not do... Is what I call the two different gods defense. For centuries, folks, as they dealt with what they perceived as the difference between God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament, had simply said, "Oh, there's just two different gods." Now, that's typically a form of Gnostic mysticism, and I doubt any of us here would seriously consider that defense. But I just want to lay this defense to rest. In John chapter one, beginning at verse one, in John chapter one, beginning at verse one, the Scripture there says, "In the beginning was the Word." The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It doesn't take much for us to notice that this mirrors Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What John is pointing out is that this is not some new God. What he's pointing out is this is the same God. We recognize, of course, that this Word that is with God is Jesus, who became flesh, according to verse 14. And so we just need to lay this defense to rest. There are not two different gods. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. So we need not to say this. The second thing is very similar to it. Well, that's not the way God is now. And while few of us would ever accept the two different gods' approach, We've sometimes accepted, and and many folks who call themselves Christians, have sometimes accepted something that's that's really almost akin to this, that God is different now than he was in the Old Testament. That Yes, when we read our Old Testament, we see that God is malevolent and malicious. He's harsh and mean and hateful sometimes and vindictive and vengeful. But in those 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God became a Christian. And he was converted and he was changed and he went through some kind of recovery process. And it became the the new, forgiving, loving, caring, merciful God that we read about in the New Testament. And even if we have not explained it in that much depth, a lot of times when folks bring up, look at how awful these things in the Old Testament are, we'll say, oh, but that's why there's the New Testament. That's why we have the New Testament. It shows this other side, shows this different God. And this defense does not, does not defend God. Now, I do think it is interesting to note before we lay this defense to rest. I do think it is interesting to note that the only reason this question really causes us a problem is because of the New Testament. If it were not for the influence of the New Testament and the teaching of Jesus throughout the Western world, we'd probably still be in a violent culture that does not care about the violence of the Old Testament. But because of the influence of Jesus' teaching on peace and mercy and love as it spanned out through the world, even among those who don't even believe in Him, we have concern about this Seemingly malevolent God that we read about in the Old Testament. But we need to understand that God did not change between the covenants. In Hebrews chapter thirteen and verse eight. Hebrews chapter thirteen and verse eight. The scripture tells us about Jesus, whom remember in John 1.1, we just pointed out is connected to the God of the Old Testament. He is with God, He is God. In John, excuse me, in Hebrews eleven, verse cha- I'll get it out in a second. Hebrews thirteen, verse eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's not changed. Jesus was in the beginning, and he was the same then as he is now. They're not two different gods. It's not the same God who's gone through some conversion process. It is the same God, and we must not make this defense. The third defense, and one commonly made, is, well, times are just different things. Times were different then. This bothers us now because we are enlightened. We we are a people who have learned that the better way is the way of peace and the way of love and the way of mercy, but all these folks back in the Old Testament, they were vicious. Everybody was just vicious. They were barbaric. And the Hebrews, in fact, didn't even stand out compared to all those other kingdoms. We can look at Assyrian barbarity and Babylonian cruelty and and Roman torture, and we recognize that, that the Jews, as they followed God, they were some of the... That's comparatively most peace-loving people in the history of man, compared to what those others did. Oh, and so the barbarianism and the, the cruelty there, it didn't bother them. Times were different then. Well, now, that defense might work if God is a figment of our imagination, because what that defense says is that God is simply a product of our culture. God is not going to be a vicious, violent God for a vicious, violent people, but a peaceful, merciful God for a peaceful, merciful people. God is what He is. And it's our job to figure out what He is and to submit to Him. It's not our job to make Him up into our image. In Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, God says to Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. If God is there, God is real and He is the creator of the universe and the sovereign ruler of this universe. We need to recognize that He is going to be above us and greater than us. His ways are going to be higher than ours. They are not going to coincide with ours. And so this defense does not defend the true and living God. And the final thing, and perhaps there are other defenses, but the four that I've heard and four that I think we need to lay to rest, is, well, he's God, he can do what he wants. <clears throat> and that's a common thing that we say. In fact, I've said it. And I think I've been in discussions where I've pointed that out. And the thing that we do need to understand is there is a certain amount of validity to this argument on a practical level. Let's face it. If, as I believe, God is real, and if as I also believe God is the great power behind and above and of the universe, then our job is really not to make sense of God. Our job is simply to submit to God. And so in a very practical way, we do see that if God is there, God gets to set the rules. And so I I do understand that. And I recognize a certain amount of validity in a practical way. Sometimes we might call this the misunderstanding Job defense. And that is that we take a look at Job 38 through 42 and we say, see, that's how God defended himself to Job. He basically told Job. He said, Job, look, I'm God. I get to do what I want. But that's really not what God said to Job in Job 38 through 42. What God said to Job in Job 38 through 42 was, Job, look, which one of us is bigger? Which one of us is greater? Which one of us is wiser? Which one of us is more powerful? Considering that God is so far above us and God is higher than us, what God is saying is maybe we should distrust him. As we proclaim to our little children that we're older and we're wiser and maybe they should distrust us sometimes. That's what God is pointing out. That God is wiser. He's not just saying, I'm God, I get to do whatever I want. He's saying, I'm God. Maybe you should trust him. We need to understand that God has not said to us, I'm God, I get to do whatever I want. The pagan gods lived like that. The pagan gods said, we're divine, we get to do whatever we want. And so they had fights, and they had wars, and they had arguments, and they were fickle, and they changed their mind. But God doesn't say that. In fact, we notice the passage in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18, as it's talking about why we can have faith in the promise of God, It says in Hebrews 6 and verse 18 that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. That statement that it's impossible for God to lie does not mean that God doesn't have the power and the strength to lie. It's the point that it goes against His very nature. God has not set Himself up as one who can just do whatever He wants. But He has established holiness. And He lives by that holiness because that is His nature. We need to understand that. And so again, while on a practical level it may have some validity when it comes to actual holiness, this is not an argument that we need to make. The fact is, in First Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, quoting from Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44, Peter makes the argument from God, you shall be holy for I am holy. It would be the height of hypocrisy if God labeled holiness as living by peace and love and mercy, and yet as a rule, he is cruel and malevolent. So, I don't think even with that practical point about God being God, I don't think this stands up as a good defense for us and a good defense for the God that we read about in the Bible and for God's action in the Old Testament. So, what do we do? What do we do? There's six things that I'd like to share with you this morning. And this is going to be very quick. We'll have copies of the outline on the table in the in the back on the way out. Uh, but I hope that these things will help you understand God and help us as we continue in our discussion about understanding God and the God as we read about Him in the Old Testament. Here's the very first thing that we need to understand. God is the judge. God is the judge. And that puts Him in a different place from us. Let's just say that I thought David had committed a, a crime. And I took Wesley and I took Phil and I took Ron and we went into this back room back here and and we held a trial for him and we decided that he was guilty and we took him back out here and we hung him on one of these trees. What would that be? Well, that would be murder. That's what that would be because we don't have that right. We don't have that authority to execute something like that. But on the other hand, if, and this has not happened, we'll just use some no-name person. Some person has actually committed a crime and he is taken before the judges of our land and by the laws of our land is found to be guilty and therefore judged and therefore is put to death. What is that? Well, that's execution. Why? Because the government has that right. The judge has that authority. In fact, God in Romans chapter 13 points that out. In Romans 13 and verse 1, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant. For you, you are good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Excuse me. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. I'm not saying that government has always fulfilled their role properly. And certainly I believe there's a reason why God has taken some governments out. But the point is, is we recognize there's a difference between me deciding to go off and hang somebody because of a crime I think they committed, and the government or the judge doing that. Then we take a look at the judge of the universe, and we recognize there's a difference between me going off and deciding to kill people because I think they've sinned, and what God's done in the Old Testament, because God is the judge. Richard Dawkins and his ilk don't like this. They like to believe that we are the highest authority in the universe, or at least in our little part of the universe. And we get to do what we want. Now please do not be sidetracked by the fact that atheists today are trying to talk about how moral they are. Because the fact is, in their morality, who gets to set the morality? They do. Nobody gets to tell them what morality is. So we want to get rid of God because we don't want a judge. We don't want anybody holding us accountable. But God is the judge. He was a judge in the Old Testament, he's a judge in the New Testament, and he's the judge today. And God has the right to bring about judgment and to cause his wrath to be upon people. In fact, Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. In Romans chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how would God judge the world? I just want you to notice this, that if we say it's unrighteousness for God to inflict wrath on us, we're not speaking in a spiritual way, we're not speaking in a godly way, we're speaking in a human way, because God is the judge, and we are not. That is why in Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 17, Paul demonstrates to us that we are to leave vengeance and judgment up to God and not take it ourselves. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God is the judge. Now I would like to point out to you, if we take a look in Genesis, Chapter 15, in Genesis chapter 15, when God explains what He's going to do to the land of Canaan, He points out that it's because of judgment for sin. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What is going to be happening here? This is going to be judgment. But the reason the Jews don't get to just take this land now is because the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. That is, they haven't done the things that are worthy of the judgment I'm going to bring on them. But by the time they come back, they will have, and judgment will take place. And We can recognize, as Psalm 98 says, Psalm 98, beginning at verse 7, Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. There's a reason why we're not the judge, because we won't judge with righteousness or with equity. But God, we can trust Him that He does judge with righteousness and equity. And as Abraham said, the God, judge of all the earth will do what is right. We can trust Him in that. The second thing that we need to understand is that God is the judge, but number two, sin is just that awful. The Old Testament is written for us to understand that sin is just that awful. Awful. The problem is not that God doesn't understand how awful His actions are. The problem is that we don't understand how awful our actions are. We don't recognize how tragic our sins really are in the full scope of the universe. Rather, we think that what God says about it is is kind of harsh. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, Ezekiel said, The soul who sins shall die. In Romans chapter 6, and verse 23, Paul said, The wages of sin is death. The whole story of mankind began with God telling Adam and Eve don't eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That is just how awful sin is. The penalty for it is death. And we say, oh, but isn't that harsh? especially when we understand that that death is really not the physical death, but the spiritual death, and the eternal damnation and hell. In fact, Charles Darwin himself claimed this in his autobiography was the linchpin for why he finally gave up on his faith in God. He said, I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all of my friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. The fact is, brothers and sisters, what we wish about the matter doesn't matter. To be honest with you, I wish that Darwin had never taken his trip on the HMS Beagle to the Galapagos Islands. I wish that he'd never written this book, but all my wishing doesn't change that it happened. And all my wishing that Christianity might not be true is not going to change whether or not it is. And we need to understand that. The thing that we need to understand is that sin is just that awful. And the God who created the universe gets to be the one who determines that. In 1 John chapter 1, 1, verses 8 and 9, the scripture there says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word translated confess there is the Greek word homo logeo. Homo meaning same, logeo meaning words. Confessing our sins means to say the same words. As whom? As God. Confessing our sins is not merely admitting that we are sinners. Confessing our sins is to say the same thing about sin that God says about sin. And the Old Testament is teaching us what God says about sin. God says sin is awful. It's despicable. It's not just a mistake. It's not just that, oh, you know, we all are human. It's worthy of death. We don't have to like what God says about it, but our liking, it doesn't make it true or untrue. The point behind the Old Testament is sin is just that awful. And we need to begin to say the same thing God says about sin. Third thing I think we need to understand is that the real judgment is not what happens in this life. And you know, so there are some atheists and skeptics that can almost get their mind around the issue of God being judged, and and some of the deaths in the Old Testament being God's judgment on those who sin. But there's always that sticking point of what about the babies? What about the children? In Jericho, young and old were killed. What about them? They were innocent. Now, our Calvinistic friends, they take an easy out. They say, nope, we're all just born in sin, and so everybody's just worthy of judgment. It doesn't matter what happens to them. But I don't think the Bible bears that out. Deuteronomy uh, demonstrates. Deuteronomy chapter 34, I believe it is. Get my right passage here. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 34. I knew something was wrong with that. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 34, it says, And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me the Lord was angry on your account and said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. These children didn't know good or evil. It wasn't their choice. They weren't accountable. And that's why in this particular judgment, these children lived on, to be able to go into the promised land. But What about all the children that did die in judgment? Well, the thing that we need to understand is that the judgment is not really what happens in this life. Death is not judgment. Death is actually the summons to judgment. Look in the book of Ezekiel. He came to the book of Ezekiel in chapter 9. In verse 1 it says, Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after them and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house of the Lord. It goes on and describes the judge. the thing that we need to understand is this is not what actually happened. This is a vision. This is a vision of God explaining to Ezekiel what's going on. And the point behind this is not that when Babylon came through and wiped out Jerusalem, that nobody who was innocent uh, died. It's not saying that everybody who was innocent lived. What it's saying is God knows those who are His. Consider a similar statement in Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, where it becomes even more clear about this matter, And it goes on in the next few verses, talks about those who were sealed. And then in verse 9, it talks about the great multitude that no one can number. And then in verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. What is he saying? These are the people that came out of the tribulation. What? These are the ones who died in the tribulation. There they are before the throne of God. They're not still on the earth. They died in the tribulation. But they're innocent. Their robes have been washed the feeling that took place was not to say that in judgment they would never die. It's rather the fact that they might die as the Romans come through. But when they stand before God in judgment, they'll be given life and not death. These folks aren't complaining. Moses was judged. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. But the next time we see Moses is on the Mount of Transfiguration and he wasn't complaining that he died. Now, one of the problems with this is the temptation to chase every rabbit that, that might come up in this. And yet I think this is important. When I know that skeptics and atheists who hear this response will simply say, well, then let's round up all the kids and kill them so they can go to heaven and not go to hell. And the thing that we need to understand is that's just not our job. God is the judge and we are not. And God has said that what he wants is for folks to live to accountability and to decide to, to serve him. And leave it up to them. He doesn't want it in our hands to kill everyone off. So the thing that we need to understand is not that the answer here is is that we need to kill people when they're young so they'll just go on to heaven. The answer is we need to understand that when the innocent die, it is not as tragic as the evolutionists and the atheists would like us to believe. Fourth thing. Imprecatory psalms are not God's action. I believe that the imprecatory psalms really don't have much bearing on our discussion because I don't believe they're about God's action. But I know that it's tied in by those who are skeptical, and so we need to consider them. Imprecation is a curse, and in some of the psalms, we we see where the psalmist called down curses upon their enemies. For instance, in Psalm 58 and verse 6. Psalm 58 and verse 6. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away when he aims his arrow. Let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Pretty strong language. The curses of God excuse me, the curses of God's people on their enemies. And the thing that we need to understand here is that we cannot hold God accountable for the prayers of His people. The prayers of His oppressed, distressed, discouraged, beaten down people who come to God with their concerns is not the same as God's action. And I'd like for you to notice something in Psalm 35. In Psalm 35, we find David calling down a curse upon his enemies. This is what he's gone to God and asked for. But notice what he actually did. In Psalm 35 and verse 11, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved with my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. David called God to curse his enemies. But when he found Saul in the cave, what did he do? He let him go. David called God to curse his enemies. But when he found Saul on that hillside and he was able to take the spear, and what did he do? He left him alive. Brothers and sisters, what we see in the Psalms is not the action of God. We see the prayer of God's servants who are distressed and afflicted, and they go to God and say, God, deal with this. They do not take matters into their own hands. They trust God to deal with it rightly, and they leave it up to Him. It's a lot like when somebody's made us look so mad, we say, I'm so mad I can just kill them. But we don't do it. We go to God and we ask Him to deal with things properly. That's what these psalmists are doing. So we cannot lay at God's feet these expressions of deep emotion that His children take to Him when they're doing it to trust Him to do what is right instead of taking matters into their own hands. Two more points. The fifth thing that I think we need to recognize is that we must not miss the mercy of God in the Old Testament. In statements like we read earlier, all we hear about is some of the bad things. We overlook the mercy. In fact, one of the things that's very interesting is that even Christians, they look back at the God of the Old Testament and and act as if he was a malevolent meanie. But if we take a look at how the folks who actually lived in that time thought of him, they saw him as merciful. In Jonah chapter 4 is, I think, perhaps the greatest example of this. In Jonah chapter 4, God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh. And what he preached at Nineveh was not, you guys need to repent or God is going to judge you. What he preached at Nineveh was, in 40 days, y'all are going to die. In 40 days, God is going to judge you. That's what he preached. He didn't say, in 40 days, unless you repent. He said, in 40 days, it's over for y'all. And yet they did repent, and so God turned away from the judgment that he was going to bring upon them. And in chapter 4, and verse 1, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a... Well, watch it. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why did, we know the story about Jonah running away from God, and we know the story about Jonah being swallowed by the great fish and finally deciding to obey God. Well, we know that story. Why did Jonah run? Was it because he was afraid the Assyrians would get mad at him and kill him? No. Was it because he didn't want jo- uh, Nineveh to be judged? No. It was because he wanted Nineveh destroyed. Assyria were the mortal enemies of Israel. He wanted them destroyed. But he knew if he went and told them, they might repent. And God was just so merciful, he might forgive them. And he didn't want that to happen. We may look back on this God in the Old Testament and say, Oh, what a malevolent God. What, What a vicious, mean God. But those who served him saw him as a merciful and gracious God. So gracious that they knew he wouldn't even destroy his enemies if they repented. Let's not miss that. And then the final and the most important thing. I know that this lesson has gone on just a little bit because it's just that important, but please make sure that if you've if you started to drift, come back to this one. Because I believe that this is the most important point that we need to understand. And that is we have to ask the question, why was the Old Testament even written? And why are the things that are in the Old Testament revealed? The Old Testament does not give us everything that ever happened to Israel or to Judah. The Old Testament does not tell us everything that ever happened in the history of the world. Why was the Old Testament written the way it was written? Why are there these laws? Why are there these stories? The reason, brothers and sisters, is is because the Old Testament was written to teach us one thing. We need Jesus. The Old Testament was written to teach us one thing. Without Jesus, our end is death. Look in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, Paul said, For Christ... Is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word end there is not saying that there was the law and then it ended with Christ. It's the end. It was what the law was looking for. It was the goal of the law. What's the goal of the law? Christ is the goal of the law. In Galatians chapter 3, in Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 19, why then the law? This is Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law been contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, and until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What does Paul say here in Galatians? He says, the reason for the law was to get us to Jesus. The reason for the law was to get us to see that we're sinners, and that sin leads to death, and that because of that, if we want life, we need Jesus. Why didn't God just send Jesus a couple of days after Adam and Eve fell? Because man wouldn't understand how much they needed it. It was this period of, of these couple thousand years through which God demonstrated if you go off on your own, you're just going to die because of your sins. If I put a law down here and tell you live by this law, you're still going to die because you're not going to follow it. You need a Savior. And every story, every sacrifice, every law was written with that intention for us to understand that without Jesus Christ, we die just like all those people. Every single one of us died What was God doing? Was God being wicked and malevolent because He was judging people? No. God was being loving because He was bringing about the plan by which people could be saved. I think Luke chapter 13 demonstrates the point. In Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told Him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the Old Testament is telling us the same story. It's telling us to." Do you think that those folks were just awful back then? No. If it weren't for Jesus, you would all likewise perish. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand every judging death that we find in the Old Testament, whether we're talking about Noah and the flood, or we're talking about Jericho and Ai and Hazor, we're talking about Nadab and Abihu or Achan or Coradathan and Abiram, We're talking about the Amalekites or the Moabites. Every single one of those deaths is written to tell us this would be you if it weren't for Jesus. This would be you if it weren't for Jesus. That's why it was written. And that's why it's there. What do we do with the God of the Old Testament? we realize that he's God. I hope you understand that that this lesson this morning has not been about does God exist. Atheists and skeptics seem to act like if they can prove that God is unlikable, he must not be real. Someone doesn't have to be likable to be real. I don't have to like him for him to be real. Someone doesn't have to be pleasant to be real. God does not have to be pleasant to be real. This discussion is not about does God exist. God either exists or he doesn't. How much I like him or dislike him or how much somebody can say good things or bad things in him, that doesn't change whether or not he exists. The real discussion is, does the Bible can present a consistent picture about this God? And it does. It presents a picture of a God who had a plan to save mankind. And he did everything he could To demonstrate to us that we need Jesus. So that's the question for you this morning.